take a Bible this morning and open it together in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to continue in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, we would like you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 217 to begin, page 217 to start, uh, or 2 Samuel 4 in your copy. Now, many of us here have seen the movie The Rainmaker or read the book by John Grissom. Uh, If you have, you know it's the very moving story of a young man who gets leukemia. And his parents, who are simple but uneducated people, they have a medical insurance policy that they bought from a door-to-door salesman. And when they go to this medical, uh, this insurance company to, to pay for a bone marrow transplant, which is the only hope that their son has, the company turns them down. And the company turns them down again. And the company denies the claim over and over and over. Eventually, the boy dies. And in the movie, Matt Damon plays the idealistic young lawyer who gets outraged about this and decides that he's going to pursue this insurance company to the bitter end, which he does. And what he finds out is that this company has made its owners rich by denying everybody's claim. I mean, their, their motto is sell the policy and then deny all the claims. Well, you know, the great benefit insurance company that was in the film, of course, is fictional. It doesn't exist. But there are many real-life people, there are are many real-life companies, there are many real-life organizations who act just like this, who put personal gain above godly principle. And, and, uh, for example, there's Michael Milken, the Wall Street operative, who put personal gain above principle, and, and thousands of people lost billions of dollars. And then there was Aldrich Ames, the CIA employee here locally, who put personal gain above principal and sold his country out. And to that list, we could add names like uh, Benedict Arnold and Judas Iscariot and Ferdinand Marcos and Jim and Tammy Baker. Now, we're going to look at at an incident here today where David does the exact opposite, where David puts principal above personal gain. And we want to let his example serve as a platform for God to speak to you and me as Christians here in the 20th century without doing the same thing. So let's look together. We're here in 2 Samuel chapter 4. A little bit of background. Remember when King Saul of Israel was killed, two rival kingdoms developed in Israel. One was led by David, and one was led by Saul's only surviving son, a fellow named Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth had a commanding general who was really the driving force, and that fellow's name was Abner. After a couple of years, Abner decided to defect and go over to David, but he was murdered by some of David's men, and that's where we left off last week. So let's pick it up together. Verse 1. When Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, heard that Abner had died, he lost courage. And all Israel became alarmed because they didn't see how Ishbosheth can possibly survive. Verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Bana and the other was named Rechab. Verse 5. Now Rechab and Bana, the sons of Rimon, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday siesta. And they went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed this guy, Ishbosheth, in the stomach. Verse 7. They had gone into the house while he was lying on his bed, in his bedroom, and they stabbed him, and they killed him, and then they cut off his head. And taking his head with them, they traveled all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. 
who tried to take your life, David. This day the Lord has avenged you uh, against Saul and against his offspring. Now, you know, we know from archaeology that in the ancient Near East, the heads of deposed rulers, defeated rulers, was a, was a tremendous prize that kings had. For example, in the Bible, uh, the book of Daniel mentions a king named Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. We know from archaeology that in his personal theater, he actually decorated it by hanging the heads of his defeated enemies on big ropes that they suspended from the ceiling, kind of like chandeliers, so to speak. And the way you would do this is you would soak these heads in wax to preserve them, and then the king, you know, considered them a great treasure. So no doubt, in bringing the head of Ishbosheth to David, these guys expected David was going to be excited and was going to give him, give him a big reward. I mean, they looked around, they figured with Abner dead, Ishbosheth had no chance of surviving. So they said, hey, this would be a good moment to earn some brownie points with David. Maybe we'll get an ambassadorship or something, you know, when he takes power. So we'll, this is what we're going to do. Now, what did David do? How did David respond? Well, before we answer that, let's remember what they did was a tremendous help to David. It did bring him some huge personal benefit. For example, with Ishbosheth out of the way, nothing now stood in the path of David becoming the king of all Israel. With Ishbosheth out of the way, then David was saved from the dicey problem of having to figure out what to do with this guy once he did take over. I mean, do you exile him? Do you make him a political prisoner? Do you execute him? What do you do with this guy? David didn't have to worry about that now. And with Ishbosheth out of the way, there was no lightning rod around which an underground movement or a resistance movement could develop. Ishbosheth doesn't run off, live in the caves, attract a bunch of followers, and carry on guerrilla warfare. Hey, these guys definitely did David a favor. Now, what was David's response? Look at verse uh, 9 with me. And David said to these guys, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble. Now, let's stop there for a second. The first thing David says to these guys is, Hey, fellas, I want you to know that the Lord has always taken care of me just fine all by himself. And frankly, guys, I didn't need your help. Then he says, verse 10, he says, when a man told me that Saul was dead and thought he was bringing me good news. You remember a few chapters ago, we saw a guy who, who at least said he killed Saul and he came to David and thought he was bringing David good news and David was going to reward him. He said, what I did with that man is I seized him and I put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for his news. So the second thing David says to these guys is, hey, fellas, uh, somebody has already tried this approach with me and it didn't work out so good. He said, now, there's one more thing I want to tell you. Verse 11. How much more when wicked men like you guys have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? The third thing he says to these guys is, Mon, you in trouble plenty. You in big trouble because I got some principles. And my principles are I don't murder innocent people. And I definitely don't murder innocent people just so I can get some kind of personal gain. That is a principle that I do not violate, that you guys did violate. Verse 12, so David gave an order to his men and they killed these guys. And they cut off their hands and their feet and they hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they, they buried it in Abner's tomb. And so he killed these two guys. Now, um, 
that's the end of the passage for today, but I want us to stop and ask the really important question. And you know what the really important question is. What is it? You win. <laughs> you got the prize. Hey, if I had a piece of chocolate, I'd throw it to him. Um, all right, next week. All right. Okay, um, where were we? Um, so what? Okay, now, um, you might say, Lon, this doesn't have anything to do with my life. Really, it doesn't. I live in the 20th century. We don't cut off people's hands and cut off people's feet and cut off people's heads anymore and do all, all this kind of grisly stuff. No, we just drop cruise missiles on people, you know. But, but the world is still the same. I mean, people haven't changed, and the way David lived back then is still an example for how we ought to live today. And I want to talk to you about that, because God wants to use His example to talk to us about the issue of living by principle, not by personal gain. You know, if I were to ask you who, were, who was the most well-known uh, person, uh, military leader for the Confederacy during the Civil War, probably most people would say Robert E. Lee. I mean, that's what I would think. Now, Robert E. Lee was a graduate of West Point. He was a career military officer who had distinguished himself in the Mexican War. He was a godly man. But something you may not know, in April of 1861, April the 18th to be exact, General Winfield Scott, who was the supreme commander of the United States Army, summoned then Colonel Lee into his office here in Washington. And General Scott was a very old man. No way could he ever lead a field command. I mean, he was very elderly. And when Lee came in, he told Lee that President Lincoln had authorized him to offer Lee on the spot a promotion from colonel to major general on the spot and also to offer Lee supreme command of the army that was being raised by the Union to fight the states that were seceding from the Union. Now think about this. If you're a career military officer and you are offered supreme command of all United States forces, I mean, that's the kind of dream that, that most military officers can only fantasize about ever getting offered. And here Lee's getting offered it. Not only that, but certainly he was smart enough to realize this was probably, the, the, you know, a, a, an open door to the presidency of the United States. I mean, Ulysses S. Grant ended up with this command and ended up becoming president. Lee turned it down. Here's what he wrote a little later. And I quote, he said, I declined the offer he made me to take command of the army that was to be brought into the field, stating as candidly and as courteously as I could that though I was opposed to secession and though I deprecated war, I could take no part in an invasion of my native state. End of quote. And when he left the office that day, General Winfield Scott said to him, Lee, you have just made the greatest mistake of your life. But you see, friends, in speaking well of Robert E. Lee, let me make it clear, first of all, I, I am not in any way endorsing the sin of slavery, nor am I in any way endorsing the sin of racism. And that's not what Robert E. Lee was all about. Robert E. Lee was against slavery. He said several years before the war, and I quote, slavery is a moral and political evil in any country where it exists. The, Lee's loyalty was not to slavery. Lee's loyalty was to the state of Virginia. And back then, we need to understand states' loyalty meant, means much more than it does today. It doesn't mean anything today, but it meant a lot then. And he had this principle of loyalty to his state 
that he said, I'm sorry, I do not care how much personal gain you offer me, I will not violate that principle. And they offered him huge personal gain. He said, I'm sorry, I can't violate my principles. Now, friends, I believe as Christians, this is the kind of life that God calls you and me to live. A life that is based on moral principles, ethical principles that come out of the Word of God, not a life that's based on the shifting movement of personal gain. Proverbs 16, verse 8. It is better to have a little and preserve your personal righteousness than it is to have much gain and to get it by means of injustice. And over and over in the Word of God, the Lord makes the same point to us that as Christians, the motivating force in our life needs to be principle, not personal gain. Principles that are based on the absolute truth of the Word of God and principles that we will not violate no matter how much personal gain it may bring our way. Now, let's be honest. This is a hard way to live. This is a very hard way to live in our world. It's a hard way to live because very few people around us live this way. Uh, and, and frankly, they, they seem to be doing all right for themselves. So the question naturally arises, well, why should I live this way? I mean, why should I put myself at a human disadvantage against all these other people? Why should I hold myself to a standard that none of the people out there competing with me are holding themselves to? Why should I do that? I'd like to give you two reasons in the little bit of time I have left. Two reasons why we can and we should, as Christians, live this way. Reason number one is that, as a Christian, you and I have a big God. We have a big God. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, if you would. It's page 629, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 629 in our copy of the Bible, or Daniel chapter 4 in your copy of the Bible... And what we find in Daniel 4 is that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has just had a bout with insanity that God sent on him to humble him. And when he finally comes back into his right mind, he gives God a tribute. He writes a tribute to God. And, and this is one of the things that he says, something he learned about God. Daniel chapter 4, page 629, look at verse 35. And this is, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, what I've learned is that God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures forever. All people of the earth are like regarded as nothing. I and mean, they can't oppose God. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back God's hand or say to Him, What have you done? What are you doing? What do you think gives you the right to do this? Nobody can tell God He doesn't have the right to do something. God's going to do what He wants to do and nobody's going to stop Him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said he learned. Now, that's why Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, that God shuts doors that no man can open, and God opens doors no man can shut. And it's why Psalm 75 says, not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He is the one who puts one person down and lifts the other person up. You say, Lon, what's the point? The point is, my friend. That true personal advancement in life comes from God. It doesn't come from all of our scheming. It doesn't come from all of our manipulating. It doesn't come from all of our trying to position and posture ourselves. No. The Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that God is the one who is in ultimate control of your career. God is the one who is in the ultimate control of your finances. God is in ultimate control of what promotions you get, what promotions you don't get. God is in ultimate control of every opportunity that comes your way. 
and that God can get you and me right where we need to get to. God can get us right where the plan of God for our life needs us to be. And friend, you and I don't need to lie, to cheat, to steal, to violate any other biblical principles to get there. God is big enough to get us there all by Himself. And He does not need unrighteous help from you and me. He can do it all by Himself. Now, when you've got a God like this, then you can take the high road. Then you can live by principle. Because you know it's not in any way endangering where you want to get to in life. God's going to get you where you need to go. And you can still live by principle. As many of you know, my oldest son, Jamie, is a senior at the Naval Academy. And this is a... We're having a great... I mean, being a senior is a lot more fun than being a plebe. You understand what I'm saying? We're having a wonderful year. This is fun. And, um, but when he was applying to get in, back in his senior year of high school, uh, he got his appointment, his nomination in the Naval Academy from Senator John Warner. And when he was applying to get in, we found out while this process was going on that Senator Warner was graciously considering making Jamie uh, one of his principal nominees for a, a nomination to Naval Academy, which is, you know, a wonderful thing. It just doesn't happen every day. Well, we, we had a little bit of a problem, though. And our problem is that Jamie had not made up his mind for sure he wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And so, you know, here we got this senator going to step out and do a wonderful thing for him, but he's not even sure he's going to take it. So, I, I, you know, we felt like, wow, we, we, we need to really think through how we respond to this. And I asked some friends what they thought, and I got some advice that said this. Hey, don't do anything. Let Senator Warner go ahead and nominate him. And if your son decides he doesn't want to go there, just turn it down. And, hey, that's politics. You know what I'm saying? This is Washington. But we couldn't do that. We talked about it, and we just decided we couldn't do that. I mean, we felt like we cannot let Senator Warner in any way get embarrassed. We cannot let him put himself in any kind of a difficult position. We owe it to this man to tell him where my son really stands. And so we got in touch with him, his office, and we said, this is where my son really stands. We appreciate what we hear that you might be interested in doing, but we have to honestly tell you, he's not even sure he's going to go. Because we felt like whatever decision Senator Warner made, he needed to make it with full disclosure. I mean, that's the only righteous thing to do. Well, as it turned out, by the grace of God, he ended up nominating Jamie. Jamie ended up going. The rest of it's history, as you know. But the lesson that I learned from that was a wonderful lesson, and I hope my son learned it as well as we watched this take shape. And that is, we learned that you can tell the truth as a Christian. You can be completely honest as a Christian. You can be completely forthright and put all your cards on the table as a Christian and do the righteous thing. And friends, no matter how much on the human level it may look like that's going to be a disadvantage, if God is in something, God is going to make it happen. And you and I don't have to lie, cheat, steal, or in any way violate our convictions to help Him. And may I say to you that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a personal way as your Savior, that when you get a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what you get is a lot more than just forgiveness of sin. You get a lot more than just a ticket for heaven. You get a big God like this who is willing to intervene in the affairs of life every day on your behalf. And if you're tired of trying to scratch out the opportunities of life all by yourself, by your own wits, I have a much better way to offer you to do this, which is to give your life to the living God and allow Him to open doors no man can shut for you. It's a much superior way to go at this thing. I hope you'll think about that. Well, there's one other reason why 
we should live this way. Not only do we have a big God, but second of all, as a Christian, we understand some important truth about eternity. I want you to turn into the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's page 818 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 818, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul is going to tell us here something very important about eternity that it really influences how you and I live here. Look what he's going to say. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 10. It says, So, for all of us, verse 10, for all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not talking about non-Christians, my friends. This is talking about us as Christians. If you read the whole first nine verses of the chapter, you'll find out that this is saying when you and I get to heaven, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to go stand in front of this judgment seat of Christ. And what's going to happen there? Well, look, we must all appear there that each one of us may receive what is due that person for the things that we did while we were in our bodies, while we were here on earth, whether good or bad. Now, God is informing us that in heaven, everything we do here on earth is going to be revisited. We're going to have a performance review when we get to heaven, and we're going to get to see everything we're doing here one more time. Now, I want to make it clear that performance review in heaven has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you stay in heaven. God's not throwing anybody out of heaven. People go to heaven because they trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and it has nothing to do with your performance. But the Bible does say that when we get to heaven and go through this performance review, it will be on the basis of this review that God hands out rewards in heaven. You say, well, Lon, what are some of these rewards? Well, I don't know. I have no clue. I, don't, I can't tell you. But I do know this. When God has given out rewards, you want them. I can tell you that. Whatever they are, you want them. And, and this is how God decides how He's going to give them out. Now, the important thing here for us to understand is everything you and I do here on earth, we're going to see again. You know, for many people in our world, the test of whether they do or don't do something is, can they get away with it? Will nobody see? Will nobody know? What I'm here to tell you is that the Bible makes it clear God always sees, God always knows, and what's more, you and I are going to see all that stuff a second time. Now, that's one of the reasons, and I think it's a good reason, why we ought to put principle above personal gain because, friends, when we die here on the earth, all that personal gain that we're so worried about is all staying right here. I mean, you, you know, hearses don't pull U-Hauls and mausoleums don't have safe deposit boxes. You understand? None of that stuff's going with us. But how we lived here on earth, whether we lived by principle or whether we lived by injustice and unrighteousness, that's going into heaven with us and we're going to see that again. And I don't know about you, But I'm trying to live here in this life in a way that I'll be proud to see this stuff come back around a second time. I don't want to be standing there in front of the Lord going, oh, 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 yeah. Mm. I did it. Oh, do you have to show that whole thing? I don't want to be there like that. You want to be there like that? No, I don't think so. Now, no matter how hard we try, we may have a few of those. But man, I'm trying to keep them to a minimum by the grace of God. To a minimum. And that ought to be your goal too. And that's why living by principle makes sense. Because I'm going to be proud when I stand before God and say, God, here was a principle. And look at all the gain I could have got. But I stood with the principle of the Word of God. Now I'll be proud of that. But not some of this other stuff. 
You know, we're buying the National Wildlife Federation, as you know, and, and the first meeting that I had over there with their president, Mark Van Putten, was a wonderful meeting. We walked in, we were talking, we had a bunch of lawyers in the room and all this other stuff. But we had a wonderful meeting, and we were talking, he said to me, you know, the National Wildlife Federation is very concerned about the stewardship of the earth. And uh, he said, you know that, that's our mission. I said, well, you know, um, we believe God created the heaven and the earth, and Bible's our middle name. I mean, we're very concerned about stewardship, too. So we had a wonderful conversation, and uh, we eventually were able to strike a deal to buy the National Wildlife Federation. Now, we had no ratified contract. We had no contract at all. We had no signed letter of intent. We had nothing but a handshake and a gentleman's agreement that we were doing this. Well, what, what we have heard since then is that there were other potential buyers who came into the market after that who very possibly would have paid a lot more money than we were willing to pay and could have made the deal happen, friends, with pocket change. I mean, petty cash they could have done this deal. They didn't need a fundraising program like we needed. And that Mr. Van Putten, from what we understand, actually made the statement to them, I'm sorry, I have come to a gentleman's agreement. I gave my word to McLean Bible Church. And as long as they can make the deal work, then they have the National Wildlife Federation. No contract, no letter of intent, nothing but a handshake and an agreement. And this guy stuck with it when it could have yielded much more money and a much easier sale. Now, I don't know whether Mr. Van Putten's a Christian or not, but I'll tell you what, he definitely lived like one. This is the way God wants us living, by principle. And the real question I want to leave you with today is, do you believe what God tells you in the Bible about Himself, that He's a big God? Do you believe that to a sufficient degree? And do you believe what God tells you in the Bible about eternity, that we're going to have a performance review and see all this stuff again? Do you believe that to a sufficient degree, that you're willing to let that information dictate your lifestyle and your behavior here on earth? Specifically, that you're willing to live a life here on earth by the grace of God that is driven by godly principle and not driven by personal gain. Well, obviously the choice is yours. But I just have to tell you, for me, I've made the choice. I believe what God's telling me. And I'm going to do everything I can by the grace of God to live down here in a way I'll be proud to present to God when I get up there. Now, that's what God wants you to do if you're a Christian. And I hope that if for some reason you haven't been doing that, that today will be a great reminder and a great motivation and maybe even a life-changing challenge. Let's pray. Lord, you know that living the way we've talked about today is hard. Most of the people around us don't live like this. Most of the people we're in competition with don't live like this. Anything goes with them. But I pray that you would speak to us deeply today, Father, about why you want us to live this way. And that you would encourage us today that we can live this way. Because we have a big God. And we don't have to do anything unrighteous to help you get us where the plan of God says we need to go. You can do it all by yourself. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us today that everything we do down here is coming back around again. We're going to see it all again. May we live down here, Lord, in such a way that we'll be proud to see it again when we stand before you in heaven. Change the very way we live. Change our very worldview, I pray, Father, because of our contact with the Word of God this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.